Bibles, would you please find with me the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27, we're looking today at verses 1 to 8. And beginning of verse 1, these are the words of the Lord to Moses. And it says, build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece. And overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners on the net of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings so they will be on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. I read a delightful story about uh, a teacher some years ago, this wouldn't happen in school today, but some years ago, uh, who had a little boy come up to her and he gave her a story that he had written and she read through the story and this is you know, kindergarten age and the story was really great and at the end there were lots of crosses at the bottom and she said, what's all this at the bottom? He said, they're kisses and he said, she said, well, who are they for? And he said, they're for you. And she said, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you, she said. How about you put one there? And the little boy said, wait a minute, I'll go and get my pen. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I was thinking about that, you know. Isn't it interesting how a cross has become the sign of love? Have you ever thought about that? How did the cross ever become a sign of love? Well, I believe the answer to that has to be biblical. Because it's through the cross that God showed us his love. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice or as a propitiation for our sins. And in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, Paul said, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is God's greatest act of love 
towards humanity. And today I want us to see something from the Old Testament that illustrates that. Uh, Something from the story of the Exodus when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, uh, which was when they were fleeing Pharaoh and then going to the promised land. And God gave them the instructions for building the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is the tent temple, if I can call it like that, that the children of Israel were to worship God at. Now, they didn't worship God in there because uh, obviously there were something like six million of them, I think it was, when they all came out and they wouldn't all get in there for a start. But it wasn't a church. It was a tabernacle. And a tabernacle is a tent. And it was uh, a place where God's presence was to dwell inside that tent. There were actually two compartments and God's presence was in the last one at the back, which is where you can see the the cloud of smoke coming out there. That's the, the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. But the children of Israel would worship at this temple and worship God as he was among them. They were camping and he was going to camp with them. He was there in their midst. And of course, it's a a wonderful picture of gospel truth. And this was uh, the, the tabernacle that God told Moses on the mountain to build. When Moses went up Mount Sinai, he didn't just come down with the Ten Commandments. He came down, I think, with some scrolls under his arm as well. And uh, he had the plans of the tabernacle. And that's what God said at the end of verse 8 there. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. And God gave the instructions how to build this tent temple. But that tent temple was not just for their benefit, it was for ours as well. Because you see, the tabernacle is a picture, a picture lesson of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1 verse 14, it says this about the Lord Jesus. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now that phrase, made his dwelling, is the phrase tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. When the Lord Jesus came to earth, he tabernacled among us. And some people believe, actually, that today is the day of Jesus' birth in the time uh, when he was born at the Feast of Tabernacles. So if you're of that persuasion, happy Christmas. Okay, but uh, that's, that's the idea that Jesus tabernacled among us. God is, just as God tabernacled among the people of Israel, Jesus came and tabernacled among us. And a part of the tabernacle that speaks to us about the Lord Jesus is the bronze altar right at the front. And this becomes a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus in his saving work for us on the cross. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 10 says this, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat because at that time in the New Testament, uh, God had replaced it with the coming of Christ. And so what was the altar? Well, I want to say this. Everybody listen carefully. I'm going to do something on purpose. Don't be offended. This, and I'm kicking it with my foot, is not an altar. There are no altars in this church. That's all Roman Catholic superstition, and we don't have any of it. That is just a table. We could use a kitchen table or anything else, a decorator's table or anything else. It's only precious because it's made nicely. That's all. But that is not an altar. That is just a table. The altar we have is a person. It's the Lord Jesus. 
And that's the altar we come to. And uh, we feed on Christ. And nobody else can do that except a believer. So this is a, a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's a picture of him in his saving work on the cross. Do you know that the, the word for altar means literally lifted up? That's what it means, because most of the altars were on, were on elevated places. And uh, they had to be, because when you had sacrifices, the ashes had to fall down below. So it was lifted up. And do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ said, John 12, verse 32? I, if I'm lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. What was he talking about? He was talking about his cross, his death on the cross. Lifted up was he to die, said the hymn writer. It is finished, was his cry. So the altar is a beautiful picture of Christ, our saviour, in his saving work. And this is what we need. And uh, this is what we need to keep our focus on in these days. Christ, the saviour and the Lord. And uh, I want us to look at this first piece of furniture and the biggest piece of furniture in the tabernacle when you do the measurements uh, and see these five things from it. So don't worry, we'll be out by three, okay? Okay, we see Christ's person, Christ's peace, Christ's preciousness, Christ's pain, and Christ's presence. Let's have a look at the first one. Christ's person. Christ's person is seen in this altar in beautiful ways because all the things about its construction have a symbolic meaning uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll notice in verse 1 it says, build an altar of acacia wood. Now, I haven't got any pictures of acacia wood to show you, but acacia trees are trees that grow in the desert. And uh, so they grow in dry ground. And that's interesting. The Lord Jesus Christ is described in Scripture in, in Isaiah 11.1 1, as a root out of dry ground. And it's talking about his humanity. And the beautiful thing about the acacia tree is it was chosen for the uh, tabernacle, the work in the tabernacle, God chose it because it's incorruptible. The worms, the woodworms and that, they don't like it. Uh, same reason they chose the cedars for making Solomon's temple. They have an oil in them that kills them off. And so it's incorruptible. And Christ is incorruptible in his humanity, isn't he? You know, the devil tempted him three times in the wilderness, as we read in the Gospels. But Jesus wouldn't sin. And he was without sin. So it's a picture, the wood, of his humanity and his incorruptible humanity. Like us in every way except sin. But the bronze that we read about at the end of verse 2, where we're told and to overlay the altar with bronze, uh, and that's, by the way, where it got its name from. Later on in chapter 38, it's known as the bronze altar. Uh, that bronze was a, a particularly well-chosen metal for all the features outside the tabernacle. In the outside, you have the bronze laver uh, uh, as well. And in the temple, there's other features outside, other uh, lavers as well that are made out of bronze. Now, why was the bronze used? Well, bronze is fireproof. To this day, a wooden door covered in bronze is fireproof. It's more fire resistant uh, than the average fire uh, can melt down. So practically, it was ideal for an altar which was going to have a continual fire burning on it. And it wouldn't have uh, allowed the altar to be burnt up and destroyed. But bronze is a metal that is used for both strength and judgment in the Bible. You remember um, uh, 
Goliath's armor was made of bronze, wasn't it? You know, he, he had his bronze armor. It's a symbol of strength, but it's especially a symbol connected with judgment. Deuteronomy 28, God said, when you go away from me, the heavens will be like brass. They'll be like bronze. What do you mean? It's going to be metal. No, it's not going to rain. It's going to be judgment. Uh, when they sinned against Moses in the in the Numbers chapter 21, Moses was told to make a bronze serpent, wasn't he? And the bronze serpent was lifted up as the picture they were to look to, uh, or, or the image they were to look to, which God made of their sin being judged. And Jesus said that was a picture of himself in John chapter 3. Bronze is a symbol of judgment. In Revelation chapter 1, we read about Christ risen and having feet like uh, like fine brass, uh, bronze. So it's a, a picture of strength in judgment. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who was going to endure God's judgment for our sins on the cross, could never have done so had he not had the power of divinity to assist him. And it's as a human and divine, our saviour came to us. And we're so grateful for that. But also you look here in verse 1 and it says... Uh, build an altar of acacia with three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. So we see the dimensions there, three cubits tall and five cubits wide. Now, three cubits makes it the highest thing in the tabernacle. Um, There was something else called the mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember that. That's inside, that's half as tall. That'll be relevant later on. But this is three cubits tall and five cubits wide. Now, I don't even have to ask, uh, but Brian, what is five in the Bible significant of? What does the number five symbolize in the Bible? Grace. Grace, yeah. Five is a number associated with grace. And Jesus is gracious. And three is a number associated with revelation. And I don't mean the book of revelation. I mean things being revealed. Uh, The... Dry land appeared on the third day of creation week. Jesus appeared out of the tomb uh, uh, on the third day. Uh, the spies appeared after hiding, uh, after going to visit Rahab on the third day. Uh, the new moon and so on. Three is a number associated with revelation. So put that together and the dimensions speak of a revelation of God's grace. Again, that's true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 says uh, that for when the grace of God towards man appeared... For when the grace of God towards man appeared. Now, when did the grace of God appear? It was talking about Jesus appearing. That's when grace appeared. And he was the revelation of God's grace. Uh, But we're also told in verse 8 that this, this beautiful bronze altar was to be made hollow. Make the altar hollow out of boards. And so it was, it was constructed four square, and I believe that's significant. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, it was made out of boards, so it was hollow. They weren't carrying a solid brass uh, altar through the wilderness. It would be impossible to carry something that heavy, wouldn't it, for the priests. And so it had to be light enough by being hollow. But there's also something symbolically significant about that, because it was emptied out. 
And in a sense that reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ who lays aside his glory to come to earth. Philippians chapter 2 says he laid aside, uh, it doesn't say he laid aside his majesty, he, became, he made himself of no reputation and uh, he came to earth. So the hollowness there is significant. And not in this passage, but in the book of Numbers, and this is something to remember, when they were carrying them through the wilderness, they covered them with different colored cloths. And as the altar was carried, they covered it in a purple covered cloth. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 13. And then they put the poles in to carry it. Purple is the color of kings. And so it speaks of Christ's exaltation. Now, every little detail there has a significance. And you can put all that together by uh, making the comparison with Philippians chapter 2. Okay, the hollow boards. He emptied himself of his outward glory. The word he became man. Bronze, he became obedient to death. And the purple cover, he ended up being highly exalted. That's Philippians chapter 2 our Lord Jesus. So what a glorious picture it gives us in in lesson form, a lesson it gives us in picture form of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need every aspect that is revealed there. D.L. Moody used to say it takes a complete Christ to make a complete Christian. And we dare not throw away a single one of those precious truths about him. But we see here, secondly, Christ's peace in this altar. If you come down to verse 2, you'll notice it says, Make a horn at each of the four corners, so that the horns and the altar are of one piece, and overlay the altar with bronze. Now, the altar had four horns, as you can see here on my altar in the corner there, uh, in each of the corners and these horns were very very important psalm 118 tells us that it was used tie the sacrifice to the horns of the altar and uh, so that's one scriptural purpose for which they were given but there's more to it than that because in the law in the book of leviticus one of the things that happened was when they offered the sacrifice they would collect the blood of the animal in a bowl and then they would put the blood on the horns of the altar. All four horns, they would coat them in blood. And that became a picture of God's offer of salvation and peace. You see, those four corners are the four compass directions. And God is offering peace to the world. And it was interesting that in the Old Testament, whenever somebody was in danger of judicial judgment, they would come and they would cling the horns of the altar for mercy. You read about that with Adoniah in in 1 Kings chapter 1. And uh, it, it became a place of mercy because that's where the blood had been put. And that's what God is calling you and me to do. He's saying, look, my son Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. And it doesn't matter which country you live in. Jesus is the savior of the world, John chapter 4. Come and take hold of his blood to be your salvation. Be saved from your sins. And you will have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lay hold like a desperate man upon the horns of the altar. The offer of salvation is being held out to you by God himself. 
And as I preach to you this morning, I would invite you to do that and urge you to do it if you've yet to do so personally. Then we see in the next part the preciousness of Christ uh, in verse 3 because we come to the utensils and it says make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks and fire pans. And in verse 3, we have all the things that are uh, the, the accompanying equipment with the altar. Let's go through them. You have the pots, which were for the ashes, and the bronze shovels. Now, these are not the actual ones. Archaeologists, by the way, have found some bronze shovels uh, in other places where there have been Jewish uh, settlements that they think are modelled on the tabernacle ones but we don't know for sure but these are just to give a a representation but what were they what were they for well we're told there in verse three that the 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 bronze pot was to remove the ashes after the sacrifice had been made the priest would come to the east side of the altar where there was an opening and he would gather the ashes and scoop them up you see these ashes were precious they were precious. Now, we tend to think ashes, you know, my mum's got a real fire in her house, you know, and scoop it and get rid of these things so we can make another fire. But the ashes for the sacrifices were precious. And so they were, they were scooped up with the shovel and put into the pot and they were taken out of the camp to a clean place. You say, John, why were they precious? Because those ashes were a testimony that that sacrifice was completely burnt up completely and totally consumed by the fire it wasn't partially offered it was totally offered and it was a testimony to the power of forgiveness uh, through the saving work of uh, of god's way of salvation and in the same way the, the men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, gathered the body of the Lord Jesus and took it out to a clean place after he said on the cross, it is finished. He bore it all, not in part, when he died there for us. Christ's death was precious. But not only that, we read of the sprinkling bowls, the bowls uh, for sprinkling, as it says there. Now, what was this about? Well, the bowls were for catching the blood. When they let the blood out of the animal before they put it on the altar, uh, the bowls were used to capture this blood. And the, the blood was what was making atonement, what was covering the sins of the people in the Old Testament temporarily, whereas Christ's death permanently removes our sins by propitiation. But uh, the blood had to be captured. Now, uh, the priest on the Day of Atonement, I know you can't see that very clearly, but he would gather the blood in the, in the bowl and he would take it into the most holy place and he would offer it on the top of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. That mercy seat was called the propitiation and it was where the blood was offered ultimately before God. And he would gather it and take it in to the temple, into the tabernacle uh, and offer it before the Lord in this way. And uh, later on, actually, in, in, in the second temple period, they made these special cups for that purpose, which had points on the bottom. And you know what that's significant for? Because you can't put it down. 
you put it down, it falls over and spills out. So the priest couldn't gather this very precious blood and then put it down for a minute and go off and do something and forget all about that precious blood. And in the heat of the Middle East, it all congeals and is blood wasted. It had to be presented. And so he would carry it in this. I wonder how many times it, that happened to make that necessary. But uh, those, those bowls were for catching the blood. You see, the blood of Christ is precious. Peter talks about the precious blood of Christ. And uh, we need to remember that when we talk about the blood of the Lord Jesus. It was the precious blood of Christ that was given for your sin and mine. And it was gathered so that our sins could be paid for in full by his death on the cross. But also you have... Uh, the next thing, which is the meat fork. Again, that's not a real one, but it is a bronze, is bronze uh, fork. But uh, the meat forks were for moving and putting the sacrifice on the altar. Uh, you see, the altar was quite big and wide uh, because of its dimensions. And with the fire raging in the middle, the priest couldn't get up into the middle to, to, to go and put the meat into the sacrifice. So he needed the the, the fork to push it in and, 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 and keep it there until it was all consumed. I don't really know what the meat forks symbolise, but some people think that the meat forks, are, uh, God's meat forks were the Roman soldiers who put Christ on the cross. But I do know the body of Jesus is precious. And then the final piece we have in this part is the fire pans in verse 3. And the fire pans, like this uh, bronze one here, it wouldn't have had a wooden handle. But this was very important and perhaps the most special thing out of this for me. Because they would use the fire pans to take the, the coals of the altar away from this altar and take it inside the tabernacle or inside the temple to put the incense on a second altar inside which was the altar for only offering incense on no blood sacrifices on that one and that was the altar for prayer where the high priest would come in and he would offer prayer with incense for the nation of Israel and uh, so one altar fed the other and that fire pan was the bridge between the two and the fire the hot coals from the altar were what enabled the incense. I want to tell you that's something very precious about our prayer life. We can only come to God in prayer and bring our intercession if we know Christ as our saviour. And it is the cross that makes possible our prayer life. I talk with people sometimes about the problems they're having and they say, oh, well, I've tried praying about it and nothing happens. And I think to myself, yeah, because you haven't yet prayed and asked Jesus to be your saviour. That's the problem. You haven't asked the Lord to rescue you from your sins yet. And you're trying to get things done by God when you've still got an outstanding debt. And you need salvation first and foremost. But when you do, that will then ignite your prayer life. And the prayer, the fire pan is a beautiful illustration of that. There is one other thing that I read that was uh, very interesting to me about the fire pan. And that is that when they had to move camp for the tabernacle, they had to keep the fire on the altar still burning. 
and uh, the altar had a fire that was supernaturally lit. In Leviticus chapter 9, when the tabernacle was all built, a fire came out of the tabernacle and it lit the altar. God lit it. And so that was a divinely given fire and it had to be kept burning. In Leviticus chapter 6, God said the fire must never go out on the altar. So when they were, camp- when they were moving and they covered it with that purple cloth, they couldn't keep the fire burning on there. So some priest had to keep that fire burning. Can you imagine some guy walking through the desert and just, you know, that was his job to keep that fire burning. And what a, what a, what a responsibility. And what a responsibility for you and me to keep the message of the cross in the front place of the church all through our Christian journey. May God help us to do that. The fourth thing we see here is Christ's pain in verses 4 and 5. Because it says, make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Now, there are various interpretations about what the grating means. Some people think it means like a grill around the bottom of the altar uh, for collecting the ashes from and things like that. But I don't think that's what it means. I follow A.W. Pink's teaching on this. If you look inside the bronze altar, halfway down, you had a grid network across it. This was the grid on which the wood sat so that the sacrifice could then sit on top of there. Uh, You couldn't have it empty down to the floor, um, because it would be just like a box on the floor then. So it had to have this grid. And so that is where the grid comes in, and it's halfway up. But because it's halfway up, it's on the inside, and it's not seen by most people on the outside. The priest would see it because he would come up a, a ramp, actually, to, to, uh, uh, to the side of it to put the sacrifice and the wood on, on the side. We read in Exodus 20, they had a ramp up the side, not steps, but a ramp. And uh, he would see it down inside. There was this grid inside. But that grid was where the fire came up from the middle. Now, this, in a very powerful way, speaks of Christ's deepest sufferings on the cross. You know, when anybody looked at Jesus dying on the cross, they saw him suffering crucifixion. Has anybody else suffered crucifixion? The cruelty of the nails, the flogging, the Roman soldiers, the passers-by, those things were endured by other people as well. But what they didn't see in Christ was what was happening inside. And as Charles Spurgeon used to say, the soul of his sufferings were his soul sufferings. And what Christ bore in himself was the judgment of God on the cross for your sins and mine. Hidden from view, but very real and very necessarily there for our salvation. And how we need to remember that when we come to break bread and communion and things like this. We're not just remembering the outward suffering. We're remembering the judgment of God was borne by the Lord Jesus for our sins so we can be forgiven. There was no other way for us to be saved. And the final thing we see here is, if I can get this again a bit slow now, is Christ's presence in verse 6 and 7. 
because we're told make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze the poles are to be inserted into the rings so they will be on the on two sides of the altar when it is carried and this was a, a, a an extra part which you don't normally see when it's standing there like that but when they came to carry the altar and they put the the purple cloth over it they would have to insert two poles made of acacia wood covered in brass again the same thing so that they could then carry it and I didn't have a picture I'm afraid uh, of them carrying the bronze altar but there's a picture of them doing the same thing with the ark of the covenant so that the priests could carry it on their journey you see they were in the wilderness they were on a pilgrimage to the promised land And all the way through that journey, they were going to need the blood. There wasn't ever going to be a day when they said, well, we've got that done and we'll move that on. We left the bronze altar somewhere back up in, you know, Pyramuses or wherever, you know. They had to carry it with them because they needed the blood. They needed mercy. That's why their fire had to be kept burning. So it was always ready and available for anybody to come for mercy. And I want to say this, dear friends, the presence of Christ all the way through our pilgrimage on earth is such that he's always available for us to turn to our saviour, to be forgiven of our sins, to be cleansed and made right with God. And I couldn't stand here and preach it from one Sunday to the next if that wasn't the case, because I need my saviour continually. It's not just something I left behind in the past. Day by day, I thank God for his saving work. So we have an altar. Said Paul in the book of Hebrews. Can you say we? Does the we include you? Do you trust Christ as your saviour? Is he the one you're looking to. For your salvation. I hope and pray. If he isn't. Then come and put your trust in the one. Who this altar depicted so beautifully. We're going to uh, sing our final hymn.